0: Yes, good people, it's Francis here from Let's Do Humans podcast. This is just a quick announcement, just to encourage everybody here that's listening to our podcast right now, just to ensure that you subscribe and you follow us on all of the various platforms out there that produce podcasts, that's subscribing to us on YouTube, following us on iTunes and Spotify. I mean, follow us, make sure that you share our content and continue your support, that will be greatly appreciated. That's Let's Do Humans, L-E-T-S-D-O-H-U-M-A-N-S, Let's Do Humans, one word, appreciate all of your support. Stay blessed, good people. i chased, i chased, i chased, i chased, how is it going Nick, How are you? I'm doing well, man. Yourself? I'm I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well. I mean, here in the UK, we're gradually coming out of um, our lockdown, which seems to be going on forever. So I'm feeling slightly better, slightly more optimistic now. Okay, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Whereabouts are you based again?
1: I'm in Cape Town. You're in Cape Town, okay. Yeah, our our facility is in Hanover Park that we're working from. But oh, I'm okay. currently at Strandfontein at one of my halfway houses where guys are in recovery
0: programs. Yeah, oh, amazing. In, in terms of like your COVID um, laws and stuff, how is it going with the restrictions? Is it easy enough now at the moment or is it tougher over there?
1: By the lockdown, we we in level, I think we're in level two now. So okay. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot Okay, okay. Now we can be out till about 11 o'clock and... Uh, it <laughs> can yeah. be 100 people gathering together
0: and so yeah that makes it that makes it doable oh that's amazing um first of all welcome to let's do humans podcast obviously i'm i'm francis um jamra just oh okay Sorry about that. so about i So i was just giving you my whole life story and then it cut off <laughs> <laughs> I, I caught most of it oh you caught most of it okay yeah so i was just talking about regards to what i do and why i got you on here and um the, the reason why I wanted to speak to someone that was doing work within a community in South Africa is because, I mean, for me personally, South Africa is a very interesting case study. So you have all the historics that we're well aware of, apartheid and so forth. But recently I came across an image which kind of got me thinking more about what is that's happening on the ground in regards to like violence and everything else that's going on in South Africa. So yeah. I came across this image which showed a split of um, Strand, and I'm not not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, and Nomzama? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I saw saw this image and it showed two various neighborhoods that was only split by a couple of meters, but on one side you had a township of extreme poverty, and then on one side you had the affluence of the white community within that area. So I'm sure you're aware of, you know, the split between Strand and Nomzama. So I just wanted to know. Yeah, yeah. um, in regards to, like, current state of South Africa, because when you look at a lot of, like, the indexes of crime, it's always very high globally, but then within Africa, it's also extremely high. So I was trying to get a deeper understanding as to what is that's actually happening on the, on the ground that's perpetuating this violence. Yeah, no, look, uh, we, we we work within that culture. Mm. We are trying to
1: sort of reduce violent crimes of happening, and we have designed what we call a, a group of guys called the Interrupters. They've become first responders in regards to looking at how do we as community reduce violence because the normal law component has not been able to really assist us in reducing violent crimes within our communities. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people would think the whole Cape Town or South Africa is violent, but it's not like that. It's certain segments of of Cape Town that has become very violent, very hostile. Like, I, I live in an area which is called uh, Hanover Park, Menenberg, You can Google it to mm-hmm. So it's called the Nyanga Cluster. So the Nyanga Cluster is basically responsible for almost 80% of the murder rate that, that happens in Cape Town. But once the data and the stats goes through, it shows that Cape Town is a murder capital of, uh, <laughs> of yes. South Africa. But then again, that is a, a small portion. If I look at the radius of that area, it could be easier, you know, a uh, radius of maybe 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers in the radius that a whole mm. cluster could be up to 25 for the most. But yet it then represents the whole of Cape Town. So yeah. what we've done over the years is we've designed specialized programs to target the high-risk communities. And we train and develop young people or ex- ex-offenders, ex-gang members, you know, to come alongside with us, we train them and we sort of take them through a model of epidemiology mm. and we train them as public health professionals how to stop the violence at the front end. So these young men understand violence. They come from the culture. They obviously were part of the urban displacement, their parents. Mm. So they, are, they, they were dumped in the culture of violence. There would be situational crime, institutional crime or social crime. So we're dumping one of those pockets and they grew to understand violence as normal. So Mm -hmm. now you've got this group that, that, that takes violence as a normal behavior and you've got to train them to say violence is abnormal. Mm -hmm. And We want to train and develop you as an interrupter sort of to look at how do you make a change and a difference in your community? So these young guys and, 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 and ladies, obviously there's, there's Mm -hmm. females as well that get trained as interrupters. So they were ex-offenders, ex-gang members. So these these, these people are now acting on the front line as credible messengers. And they are the first responders. And they sort of look at who is the transporters of violence. People that they see as just like them. A couple of years ago, that was them. So they can view those guys through a better lens. And they would then forge a relationship with them. They would then Offer them, uh, I would say, exit programs out of a violent lifestyle, other of gangs. They would then do a risk reduction with them, work with the families, and spend up to four months with them. That is when they sort of quarantine
0: the transport of violence. So in regards to the initiative that you do with the um, interruption, yeah, so is that government funded as well, or is that just all independent money?
1: Yeah, currently it's all independent. In the beginning, it was government funded because obviously we we did all the research and the voice lines via government. And and we installed a lot of devices within Irish areas Mm -hmm. so that we can manage uh, violent crimes in real time. So we had what we call uh, gunfire detection systems. Okay. Uh, You know, in an area where there was more than about 10 murders per 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. So we could easily have about 60 murders per 100,000 people. Wow. in an area where there's about 55,000, you put two areas together, you get about 60 to 80 murders between those two areas, which is quite a lot because if you have six murders per 100,000, it's already a red flag. So what we've done in those areas, we've installed what we call gunfire detection systems and these gunfire detection systems then send us an alert when there's gunfire in the area. we we'll pick up uh, one gunfire, multiple gunfire, it then distinguishes what kind of weapon gets used. And in about two to three seconds, all my interrupters gets an alert on their phones, what mm-hmm. GPS location where the gunfire is happening. So their job is to respond to that incident ASAP. Mm. So between three and seven seconds, they get the alert. I want them on the scene in the next three to seven minutes. Amazing. So they need to go out there and stop the retaliation and see if they can intervene in the conflict. But what puts them on the front end of the violence is they also have devices on their phones. On their phones, they do a lot of work where they do contact logs, violence interrupter logs, outreach case notes. So they basically know the whole community and they know all the Irish guys in the area via the baseline they've done prior to us actually launching the program. So when the gunfire goes off, they will know who the shooter is in that particular area, what gang is in that particular area, and who the guy is that disposes weapons in the area. So Mm -hmm. they will then go immediately to the scene, knowing exactly who's involved with the violence. And the only thing they need to find out is what is the violence all about. If it's Mm -hmm. historic violence, if it was a robbery, if it was drug-related, if it was family-related, if there's a girlfriend involved. And once they've desegmented what the violence is all about, they immediately start with conflict mediation between the gangs and they would actually then get the gangs together maybe the following day yeah. or three days after. But on site, they would immediately do what we call uh, uh, interrupters responding. So they will respond to the hospital if a guy got shot. They will respond to the family if the family is going to get involved. So these guys work in a group of about four to five at a time, but there's only 16 interrupters per area. So okay. which means they sort of, they, they, they're very thinly spread. But mm. they, because they got, these guys are smart and they're they wise, you don't need to teach them anything about gang violence. The only thing you need to taught them is how an epidemic works
0: yeah. and
1: how violence transports similar to a disease. So now that they understand it, they then respond. And by seven minutes, in real time, all this information is on my laptop. Mm. I can then sit somewhere in my office, I can sit in my car, I can be traveling, and then I will work out the game plan for the interrupters, what to do next. Mm. Because I will then have overview of what all the interrupters say about the violence, about the gang, about the transporter, the shooter. And uh, I will then send out outreach workers. Outreach workers is a different kind of a worker. Mm. He's the worker that offers you an exit program. He's a worker that look at what is the needs. What is the reason why you're shooting? How did you get involved in the gangs? So he looks at all of those issues and he then develops a plan, mm. another game plan for the individual. Because everybody is not violent by nature. Violence is what we call it. There's two processes happening. There's interruption epic. Mm-hmm. Guys, we call them. <laughs> They do public education. They would educate the public in regards to what's happening in the area, why it's happening, so that no false rumors goes across the borderlines. Other gangs hear a different story. And then you get another level of guys. They then make contact with gang bosses. Immediately they make contact with different gang bosses. They also type of interrupter and alert the gang boss of what the incident is all about. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's very small. Sometimes it's a robbery that goes sour. Uh, a gang member wants to rob somebody, and it goes sour. He shoots the wrong person, and those mm-hmm. people want to retaliate. So then the group can interrupt that whole process and runs on mediation. Yeah. Sometimes on site, or sometimes off site. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is, here the gang bosses must be, we must involve them to say, look, yes, they're involved the whole process. The area. Yeah. 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 Because they sometimes are unaware. And and gang members would tell them, spin, spin them a different story, yeah. and they would assign maybe more weapons. So our our proactive way then helps that weapons don't get assigned for the wrong reason. Yeah. And I mean, we will stop the gang wars at the front end. So yeah. then we deal with an incident and not an actual gang war, yeah. and that automatically reduces the violence
0: simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Um in terms of like um you know because obviously our, our, from my understanding is that there is a there's a massive distrust between the um, law enforcement and local communities within these particular communities where violence is 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 rife. Um what, what do you see is the major issue between the disconnect? What what is the disconnect between the um the, the law enforcement and the community? I I think the disconnect is, is, is because
1: a lot of law enforcement officials is, is very involved with gangs. You know, they're very involved in the monetary thing with gangs. So there's a segment of gangs that obviously makes a lot of money uh, mm. via drugs. And, and, and a lot of these law enforcement uh, uh, agencies, they end up on the payroll of the gangs. Mm. So for communities to then work through law enforcement, is wasting a lot of time because some of these uh, police stations Hmm. that are situated in Irish community. 70% of the police guys you can't trust. Look, I do surveys there. Wow. And I would then ask the community, I would also ask the gang. What policeman can I trust if I go to the police station to do a case? <laughs> the gang would say, look, those seven there, they fall in our pocket. The other three there, we're struggling to get them on board. But uh, yeah, you can basically trust only the three officials. Wow. How do we know that? Because many times we do conflict mediations, we would sit in the gang houses to go and do the mediation. Mm-hmm. While we're sitting there, we will then see how the different law enforcement agencies come and collect their money at the gang house. The actually paid collecting the money from the gangs. No, we physically see that. We, we sort of, when we see the law enforcement coming, we take a back step, you know, because we, we don't want to be in their business. Mm. Because our, our, our thing is about trust and credibility with the gangs. Yeah. But out of out of out of all this, we collect a lot of analytical data in real time, mm. in regards to what's happening. So law enforcement is not interested in data like that. They they they've got no interest in data.
0: Yeah, surprising.
1: And because the data will then uh, uh, will narrow their response time, and they don't want to respond mm. within seven minutes. They want to respond fifteen minutes later, or at least a half an hour later when violence is already toned down or has escalated. But mm-hmm. these most of these guys are on payroll. The other thing with law enforcement is that, you know, they, they sell the docket, the arrest docket. But, yeah. but there's always a price tag on an arrest docket. So if a guy gets arrested at the front end, the first officer would maybe, uh, he would sell it for 500 to 1,000 rand. When it goes to court, it could easily cost him 3,000 rand. When it's in the hand of a magistrate, it could cost him ten thousand. So mm. what they've done over many years, they've designed a little system where they can buy the docket right at the front end, mm. even before it gets to court. So now communities is quite aware of that. So for them to lay a case, for them to write, go to the police and trust them, that's basically they feel it's a waste of time. Mm. I mean, I physically have seen this happening with my own eyes. Wow. Where, I mean where we're trying to get the issue to off the ground. It was on a premises where there was a uh, service happening. And then our systems located the weapon on the ground. And we said, Mm -hmm. look, weapon live on the ground. And we linked to our system and look, get some uh, enforcement guys to remove the weapon from the ground. The weapon was removed. Uh, The woman was arrested that kept the weapon for the gang. The woman was the next day released. I spoke to the gang member, said, what kind of a guy let his mother go to prison? He said, no, my mother's not in prison. My mother's at home. I said, but she was arrested with your weapon in her bag. She kept it for you at, hmm. the, at the service, a the funeral service. He says, yeah, those are things we do, you know, because we felt unsafe at that particular service.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, the next day he back to me, he's got the docket in his hand and he's got his weapon back.
0: Wow. He was from taken by the police.
1: That's next day. So for me... As a community member, if I had to be just a normal community member, I would not go and report that guy. Because yeah. I know that guy will be out tomorrow and he will have his weapon back. Have his weapon, yeah. So it would scare me as a normal community member
0: yeah. to go
1: and do a file a case against an individual. I would rather not get involved and let the law enforcement do their job, those that can do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw in 2014, uh, 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 a law enforcement official, uh, SAP's official, some African police guy. He sold over two and a half thousand guns. To yes, I, I, heard, I remember in that. Yeah. Our community, which yeah. we call the cluster. Yeah, he was released this year. He got the 18 year sentence in 2014, but he was released this year. That wow. law enforcement guy. So he done what? Six so years? He changed his ways. I don't know. He, had he done about six year. years, but he's back out on the street. Yeah. But you know how many people died on account of the weapons he sold to the gangs? So he's out on the street because he's not responsible for the people that died. But I mean, if you look at it, physically, he's responsible. He's he's uh, uh, selling those weapons to the gang members. But that also was on our data because the gangs called us in and started complaining about, you know, this gang bought 30 guns, this gang bought 40 guns. Why are they buying so many guns? And they call us in and... We now need to negotiate and say, guys, I don't understand. Mm. Gangsters buy guns, mm. but they say there's no war. There's nothing happening, there's no gang conflict. Why are they buying guns? And then all of them started buying weapons so that to protect themselves. And actually a year later, two years later, a big gang conflict broke out. And I mean, hundreds of guys died because oh. of
0: the, the weapons they had, they had access to all these weapons. Yeah. And these are weapons that were being supplied by the police. But if, if it was to go back to the core of it, what, what, what is, um, from your evidence, being on the ground, what do you think is the origins of this violence, especially within these pockets of certain communities? Yeah, there's a lot of
1: stuff that contributes, but the first contributor, obviously, is the urban displacement. Yeah. I mean, I think uprooting people from where they were living, mm-hmm. they were living in Cape Town, in, you know, Upper Cape Town and in Claremont and in Kenilworth, which was very beautiful areas. So, that uprooting and placing all these people in a concrete jungle. Mm. And I mean, I, you got in, in a square meter of a 100 a block. They've got the block of flats, there's 100 square meters. And you've got 60 families living there. And that's the way they would design it. I don't know if you, I mean, you probably know about the apartheid, but yeah. I, I don't call it apartheid, I call it the urban displacement. So, that mm. was the first contributor. And the next contributor obviously was that the fact that they there was no recreational plan designed there, there was no infrastructure, economic infrastructure there. So poverty started, you know, at a very early stage when this people was all displaced. And the gangs obviously they just started to design a way that you could say, okay, how do we how do we survive? How do we make money? How do we feed our families? Mm. And they started with these small cultures of selling a little bit of uh, marijuana, selling cigarettes, selling alcohol. And this later grew into this big drug hub that that, become, that, that became the economic hub of our high risk communities. And a lot of people became dependent on drug lords and their businesses. So they became the infrastructure of finance coming in to the community and going out of the community and a, a, a typology of livelihood. So so poverty is a big problem. Drugs is a big problem. But your entry level is, if you look at, we call it the situational crime. Nothing has yet been done to upgrade these areas so that people can try to live a better life because it's built and the hotspots for gang violence to grow, for crime to grow, it's built in that manner. I mean, I, I do a little bit of urban designing and urban planning with the city at that time. And I told them, this is actually, this place was designed for these young men to uh, create crime by itself. Yeah. So so nothing has been done there. The lighting in the areas is just as bad. So, so that one segment of urban displacement and situational crime is just escalating all the time. It's just screwing all the time. The other one is institutional crime. You know, In those communities, a lot of petty crimes happened when it started out, you know, with urban displacement. But all these guys were incarcerated for having a little bit of marijuana. But that time, the incarceration was, you could get 10 years for having uh, marijuana on you. You could get 10 years for having amphetamine on you. You could get 10 years for stabbing somebody. Today, it's different because we have about 41,000 awaiting trial prisoners. Wow. And we only have space for 11,000 to sleep. So what a cell that takes it? 30 people takes 120 at a time. Yeah. Thus, they don't process the guys. And our prosecution rate is about 3%. Wow.
0: The
1: successful uh, prosecution rate is about 3% for the most. Mm. So now you've got all these guys floating around, already has committed crime, already has gone through the system, of incarceration but has popped out at the back end a few days later, maybe a year later, two years later, but there has not been a rehabilitated. So the restorative side of them being incarcerated has not added value. So institutionally, crime has also been created against the communities because the guys get staken out, but they come back. So they come back with all these different styles on their shoulders. Mm. They got the number system that they've acquired. So they are now better gangsters. They are now more qualified gangsters. Mm. They've got like a degree in gangsterism. And now they come back and they expect that respect to come their way. But the communities don't understand what prison has done to them. So there's no restorative, I would say, uh, value added when guys are incarcerated. So situational crime continues, institutional crime continues. Yeah. And that now, all of that just puts the, the bulk of the crime on social crime. Yeah. So now you get all the social issues happening. Now you get all the gender-based violence happening. And it's all, all linked with the fact that unemployment, it's now about 30, I think that's about 38%. Yeah, I think so, I checked.
0: I you think know, it was about 40%. Unemployment. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, going
1: to 40%, yeah. yeah.
0: And I was looking so, at something so, interesting... So you, and prior to speaking to you, I was, I, was, I was doing my readings and my studies into like, you know, the, the, geo, the geographics of um, South Africa in particular. And I realized something quite interesting that violence tends to be quite prevalent in areas where there's relative poverty. So you would have a community of extreme poverty in one end that's deprived of, of all of the wealth within the community. And then right next door, you have affluency. So it's like you look outside your window and almost yeah. see all the beauty in the world but you have none of it. And I realized that yeah. when you take that same principle across the world and you look at areas where relative poverty is very high, where communities of affluence and poverty are right next door to each other, you get extreme violence within the, the poor communities. Because what you tend to find is that young men in those poor communities are now looking for social status that matches that yeah. of the affluent community. And then they start looking for it within their communities by you know committing acts of violence, you know, serious um, rape and kidnapping, and murder and so forth, in order to gain that respect that they see other African people getting. Do you think that plays a part? Like, how did you yeah. the structure of South Africa at the moment?
1: Exactly, that, that that plays a part because they're constantly competing with that other affluent area and that's where they want to be. Mm. But the resources is so limited, but in their own community. And like you said, there's a road that separates some of these communities yeah. So I, I'm working in an Park, which is infected with gang violence. So I've got my team deployed there. Then the road separates us, and then you get the uh, estate. No violence, no murder there. It's mm. physically a road separating them. But yeah. they've got single dwelling homes. That's a three-bedroom home. There's home water in there. And those people, most of them are working. So most of those families in that, that side of the uh, of the fence are working this side of the fence you get out of maybe out of 10 families only only six of them can afford you know to to sustain their and, and you go out other four uh, families that cannot sustain and generating processes that happens via the gangs. So drugs has become, but yet most of the drugs get sold to their own people. It's not that thick anymore. And a lot of these young, they become, social so substance is beginning to level the income generating and sustainable livelihood. Then you see there's this big difference. So always trying to, to match up to that, at least have a, a job. Now, in our program, we obviously recruit a lot of Irish guys. The first thing they would ask you, it's not that you must help them to get off the drugs. The first thing they would ask you, hey guys, can you help me find a job? I said, mm-hmm. look, you have to go through a job readiness program. You first have to come off the drugs. I first need to sort out your identification and social card. Once that is sorted out, take me a couple of months, three months to join the program. We bring them to an in-house program. It's a halfway house. Not, it's on the coast in Falsberg coast, which is a better environment. Mm-hmm. Actually no, zero violence aside. We bring them here. They wake up in the morning, they see the coastline. Wake up in the morning, they inhale Mm. fresh air. Three months later, this guy is reintegrated. He's got a job. I now have 33 guys. In the last three months that I gave a job that comes out of the Irish community, they are now starting to support their families. So the whole dynamic of them being transporters of violence and crime has changed over three months. So Mm. that is how simple it is. You just change the borderline. you know investment happening and it all stops at the borderline of for government departments to come and work there to do investment there Mm. and to uh uplift the infrastructure of that areas but yet we have programs like ourselves to say look you can come in the area your safety is basically guaranteed Mm. we have now one of the most violent areas in hanover in Cape Town is now a tourist attraction. Oh, wow. The, people, the tourists are coming. They're coming 10, 12 at a time, little bus. They stop at our the office. They look at all our devices,
0: hmm. uh,
1: technology we're using, the way we do data. They meet all our people. They look at the feeding program. We take them through the community. They meet actual gangsters, they meet actual shooters. They look, that's just normal people. It's just that the situation is is aggravated against them, and that's why they act out. But on a normal day, with you coming here, with me coming here, nothing is happening. And these tourists can't understand. And they say, like, Craven, look, we need to really speak to your government as, look, (laughs) you must have the political will to end stuff like this, you know? Yeah, uh,
0: absolutely.
1: At this time, they don't have it yet. Yeah,
0: that's the thing, because, I mean, it's always in the interest of... Of, of those who hold power to, to keep those who are um, mm. the, the sort of a particular culture or particular group in the position that they're in. And that's the sad part about it because it is as simple as offering people opportunities and giving them opportunities so that they, they feel sure. like they have a sense of purpose. Because one thing I realized about human beings, when we don't have a sense of purpose, that's when we can easily fall into that pit hole of life where we, we fall into violence and we fall into depression and all these other things and addiction because we don't have no sense of purpose. Mm. We, don't, we don't know how to feed ourselves and we don't have the opportunities to feed our families. And no man in particular, because obviously yeah. most of the violence comes from men, no man in particular wants to go home to a household where they're unable to provide for. And if you're in that environment, you're going to end up going into violence. So yeah. It, 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 on your end, is there any lobbying or is there any push yeah. for, for more governmental like I- I- initiative and action? Yeah, I'm currently, that's why I just got back today. I was in all
1: day meetings with different government departments because they've asked me to get back involved with the gunfire detection, monitoring and evaluation of where the hostile areas are and how I can deploy some of my team to stop the violence at the front. And so we, we, we're basically looking at, at this year rolling out one of our programs again. But it needs five pillars, you know. Our mm. programs, and it's, 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 it's based on public health and epidemiology, So I can start the program today and end of the year there's no funding. I I must stop the program. It doesn't work. Our programs don't work like that. So if I start it out and I roll it out, I need to have interrupters. I need to have outreach workers. Mm. I need to identify the tech crime. I need to interrupt the crime, alter the behavior of the masses. I need to do a database in regards to managing this whole thing as to how and who is the guy that we need to help. Once that thing is in place, this program reduces violence at 43% over two years. And it's scientifically proven. So we're looking at that. How to roll out this program, uh, I would say, 100% uh again because it's up about twenty percent and if we stop more
0: But
1: you can't process these guys. So, gang members, you don't want them to change their behavior or exit the gang when you don't have the resources to process them. You cannot ask a guy to change his life. And and this livelihood that is good now in the game currently, there's some
0: Yeah, cut off again. Yeah, that uh, this is a problem, you know. With, <laughs> yeah, know yeah. With low trading, no,
1: it's absolutely it just makes fine. It everything unstable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm just gonna ask you a couple more questions anyway, because I know it keeps on cutting off, and you're probably a busy, busy man. Um So one of the, one of the, oops. So now my, my one's cut off. <laughs> can you see me now? <laughs> <laughs> I can see now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what What is the root cause of like the, the gender based violence? Because that's 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 been a major um, point of concern when it comes to violence in those particular areas. Wh- why is there such a big um, b- big uh, emphasis on gender violence, and why are people so violent to females in particular in these areas? Yeah,
1: you, you know the male species, like I said, now is it, lost. Is is you know is lost ability to to protect, uh, to provide, you know, and, and that that is one of the key issues why they become uh, so violent because uh, they, they are they are pressed on a certain end where they cannot provide and they cannot protect their families. Mm. There isn't jobs for them, and there is this pressure that comes from families that they need to be protected, they need to be provided for, you know, and uh, and and they need to be trained. As, as individuals and men uh, cannot live up to that because there is not an income stream for them. Mm. And, and and then the earth, uh, the side where we are, you know, they, they sort of press a lot on the male species that they cannot deliver. And the minute they, they go to the other side where there is income generated is the wrong way. So, so when we look at the gender-based violence, it's a lot about men not being able to provide for their families and then they sort of act out in a serious way mm. that, you know, they try to suppress and oppress women, not to speak back to them and not to speak against them. And they use it in a in a very violent way and because women obviously is a bit weaker. Mm. So this does, if we look now what happened during the lockdown, we found that there was a ban on alcohol.
0: Mm.
1: It was an alcohol ban. And people said that, you know, the the death rate will be less because accidents will be less. But then domestic violence was worse yeah. because there was a lockdown on alcohol. So alcohol was still available, but at 10 times the price. Wow. So an average guy would maybe spend, he earns about a 1,000 rand a week and he spends 300 rand on alcohol. Now he had to spend the whole 1,000 rand on alcohol because wow. the, the bottle of whiskey that he could buy for 300 is now costing him 1,000 rand because they put a, a ban on alcohol but the alcohol was still available yeah. so the domestic violence during lockdown has actually doubled mm. because men has become more frustrated more violent because now they coming home without money mm. and you know and 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 they're buying one bottle of alcohol for their own pleasures and and people are saying that you know there was less accidents but the accidents in the houses mm. and in in the, in the families was worse because of, of banning alcohol and and then uh, banning it, but it's still available. Because you look at drugs, it's freely available. So imagine you can actually ban alcohol, it's impossible. These mm. guys will still find a way to get alcohol, but now they're selling it at maybe 10 times the price. Mm. And, and then you could see that alcohol plays an important role in domestic violence. It plays a serious role in domestic violence, and then, obviously, substance abuse also plays, uh, various drugs plays a serious role in domestic violence. And the fact that men can't provide, that that, mm-hmm. that puts them in limp mode already. And they become aggressive because they cannot provide. We have noticed, I mean, I can, we can show you data, of mm-hmm. men that have become income generators and providers. The whole violence in that particular family has also cooled down. Mm-hmm. The violence in that street has cooled down. Because these men have now become providers. Mm-hmm. And out of that, they've got a little bit of money for themselves, they've got for their families, and they can also compete with the guy opposite the road and, mm-hmm. and, and start to live a normal life. But there's, there's so much contributors, you know. The other issue about violence, you know, if you we go into the brain, we will find out that uh, a lot of men are already hot-wired mm-hmm. since early days. Even prior to the urban displacement the brain of, of a lot of men during the time of slavery has been has been has been changed he has been changed you know into a fight mode you know not uh, some of them take the flight mode but a lot of them take the fight mode mm-hmm. and their brains are so hard while the, the amygdala you'll find out that, that a lot of guys when you interview them look i love with them i, I love with perpetrators of violence i've got a facility where I've got access to 40 of them every day. Mm. I can interview, I can ask what's the reason, that's and that. And these guys would answer, you know, look, I, I sometimes don't know why I'm so angry. I, I, I'm I just angry because I cannot provide for my family, but they are looking for me to provide. And I looked at my own life a couple of years ago when provision became a problem, I, I became a bit angry. It's like, mm. why can't I provide for my family? What, what's happening to me? And then that hot button, you know, that anger neuron in my brain I sort of switch on, you know, because I I I just felt the need that I need to provide and I can't. So what the urban displacement has done already to a lot of men, it has pretty really crippled them. Mm. And and today the expectation is that men must just uh, they must just alter their behavior, especially mm. in our communities. They would ask, they would just expect that men must just change. We're running a program now with about, about 50 men. And 33 of them is with me. It's called a men's program. So they sort of stay with me and work with me for the next, I would say, five months. And if you look at the change in these guys' behaviors, just because they're in the income stream, yeah. they are part of a group that they feel we belong. And this is not the game. This is now a community group that works in the community that earns money take that little bit of a livelihood back to their families. But yet they are a little bit angry, mm. you know, so they also go through anger management, they go through a program we call Paradigm Shifts, they go through different goal settings, a lot of stuff that as men they've missed out on. So all of that programs is designed to alter the behavior of that man that he can understand, you know, that he does not need to be as violent as he is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, but if you look, you 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 can go through it that that uh, in, in in our Irish communities, eighty percent of the men is just angry. Mm. They're just angry, and some of them don't know the reason why they are as angry as they are, yeah. And then it just rolls over into their families. And we are not talking about only gang men, men that belong to gang or men that is involved with drugs. We are looking at a normal guy mm. that's got the nine to five job, but still becoming a perpetrator of domestic violence yeah and and there's a 50 50 when it comes to domestic violence of a normal nine-to-five guy and then Irish guy living on the streets mm-hmm. and one of my programs if if i recruit guys gang members i recruit them i go through the different gangs and i tell him look this guy's going to work for me he's got this on his record that on his record he comes out of prison he was incarcerated for 10 years the gang said, no fine pastor this guy can work for you. We respect him. He's done his time. He served his time. And he wants to make a change in the community. They respect him. I bring them a guy who's got violence against women and children on his record. The gangs would say, nope. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> You're not going to bring that guy to us. Yeah. So they even reject a man that perpetrates against women and children, even gangs. Yeah. So we we could never employ any guy who had that on his criminal record. Can okay, mm. you imagine that if gang members don't respect a man like that, yeah. then that is not something that they promote? They don't yeah, promote violence against women. You, you kind of see
0: that world. across in the prison systems as well, globally. Anywhere you go in the world, you can have, you know, yeah. serial killers in there. But as soon as you bring like a child molester or, you know, someone yeah. who abused a woman in there, then it's a wrap. They all ostracize him or they're willing to kill him to an extent, to the worst of extreme. Yeah. You know what I, mean? I mean, when you look, when you hear all of these stories and you look at it, it feels like the, the nation hasn't actually dealt with its historic trauma as well. It seems to be a lot of historical That's trauma. True. Yeah, and that is a devastating factor because it's so deeply engraved. And, you know, you you're, you 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 had the generation that experienced it, the displacement firsthand. You had the generation that was born from it. Mm. You had the generation that are now born more children from the back end of it. And this it seems to be like... A never-ending cycle of trauma, which hasn't been dealt with, and is 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 very is a very yeah. deep subject, and it's like it's almost how do you deal with that on such a wide scale when so when it's affected so many people in yeah. so deeply engraved? Because unless there is like a massive system systemic change that that then enables people access to to all of these um, riches and opportunities and simple things like employment, yeah. it's going to be very hard to deal with stuff on a micro to make a larger change. You see what I mean? yeah yeah and it's, it's, it's... yeah i
1: know we, st- we started with a, a, a program uh so it's actually going out into schools and training young men you know to tone down their violent behavior so mm. we we have already dropped this to a very young age and we're working on, on high schools and mm. even primary schools to teach young men that violence is abnormal you cannot have a violent nature and you, you you need to de-learn that. You need to unlearn that. So we are starting already at a young age to teach men to unlearn that violent nature mm. because they might figure, no, it's just temporary. The bullying and the way they speak is temporary, but what they don't know, it actually grows with them. So mm. we are teaching them to park it already at a young age. And I think that will be the mass mobilization that we are busy with, especially with men trying mm. to teach them that, you know, violence and anger, uh, they don't need that in their life as a man. They can be they can be men in more ways than acting out in violence and oppressing women and oppressing children and other community members. Mm. So it's a long road, but yet we need to acknowledge that somewhere this thing has gone wrong mm. and nobody has dealt with the trauma. So that program is zooming on the trauma that men are suffering or have suffered mm. and now it's become a generational thing. So, yeah, I think in the next 20 years, we might <laughs> we might see some dent in this yeah. uh, cycle that many seeing themselves differently now. And they, they believe that they can, without violence,
0: without oppression, still be seen as a man. Yeah, that's amazing. And obviously we need more people like yourself who are actually doing the groundwork and who actually understand these communities and know how to deal with them. Because sometimes you have a system that's trying to deal with a community that they don't understand. And you get that wherever you are, yeah. you know what I mean? So like, you know, here I've, I've got friends who are doing amazing stuff within the community. I've got a friend called Sage who works with like, you know, young kids in Mentivity. We've got United Borders. And I know various people that are dealing with communities and people directly. And because they understand these communities, they end up getting real life results. When sometimes when you have the system mm. or the government coming into these communities trying to do something, it's more like a bulldozer method or, you know, because I don't understand that. I'm just going to mm. grab everybody and treat everybody absolutely the same when. Really and truly, they are deep-rooted really yeah. issues that only those within the community understands. Um, in, in terms of your organisation, how do people go about supporting your organisation?
1: Yeah, we we we've we've got a little Facebook and we've got our website where we reach out to people to support us. You know, mm-hmm. so we've put it out there, and then uh, actually in England we've got some support from oh, really? from the nice uh, the the, the Trazer Foundation in England and also mm-hmm. the. Uh, one of the Methodist churches that has uh, sort of come alongside us to support one of our facilities here in Cape Town that is helping young men to alter their behaviours. Mm. But these young men stay in house for up to three months with us while we helping them to sort of change their behaviours. So we, we, we reach out to people for support all over, you know, where we can. Locally, it's a bit difficult to get support from local government institutions. Mm. And even now, during COVID for the last year and a half, it's been difficult for so many people to really support other entities and organizations like ourselves, but we continuously reach out to people to say, look, and, and even if you support one individual that reaches out and you support them from the other side, you know, like Teresa Foundation has done, they supported 15 individuals this year. Amazing. And, uh, and the qualitative data we've shown to them now is that 13 of the young men are working today. 13 of the young men has reintegrated. It is three, four months later. So their investment has has become a a quality investment Mm -hmm. that uh, that families, that community will definitely see the difference of their investment by by supporting those guys to stay in one of our facilities for the three months. So there's many ways we can invest. Sometimes people are thinking of, you know, it's going to cost a lot of (laughs) A lot of money, but sometimes you invest in one person, the Mm. transporter of violence or the transporter of the degradation of that particular family. When that behavior is altered, the whole family is saved. And you can cut off the generational transfer Mm. of violence because if I'm a violent man, I'm going to raise my children in a violent way. I'm Mm. going to discipline them in a violent way. And that obviously then will transport to them. And they will just continue and think it's right for me. Like we, we've got a method. We don't believe in capital punishment. We don't believe in beating our people or our children mm. or, or our grandchildren. We we understand that everything can be negotiated, can be mediated. Countries can be resolved with words mm. and actions that's positive. And we, uh, in the last, I think it's the last, we started this project in the year 2002. And the result we've seen is phenomenal. That's a phenomenal result we've seen. And for some years, there was no support that we could actually depend on uh, getting some funds. For. But we we have taught many community members, look, the change will happen from within. Okay. And the money is inside of you. You've got to reach inside and like, hey, what are you talking? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't even have a bread to eat. The money is inside. Yet, let alone one of the facilities was built in the most impoverished communities was built by that community. Amen. Today, it's how many years later? It's about 18 years later. The people are still amazed mm. <laughs> that out of their poverty uh, situation, they have actually built an institution that today are saving many people alive. Yeah. They, they still stand back and say, did we really build this institution? <laughs> they they <laughs> can't believe it. But sometimes <laughs> you need to empower people that there's some stuff inside of them and then reaching out today because the thing has grown quite big. So it's difficult to fund it, you know, from from within. But mm-hmm. yet the start was made. And 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 we reach out to people via social media, any yeah. in regards to supporting the initiative and to supporting individuals and yeah. to supporting maybe just the project. Yeah, so a someone has now also in England that supported just the project. Yeah. And we we have shown her now, four months I are mean, coming. Four weeks ago, she supported the project of getting a family, a single mother and a daughter, sorted out getting them into a, a dwelling, a house. And that's four weeks later, the house has been built. And the family is moving in, at uh, in the next two weeks, yeah. the family will be moving in. And this is a woman that actually works in the community, sacrificed a uh, livelihood to serve the community, but never had a home of her own. Always yeah. been living in, in halfway houses and I would say uh, places of refuge, but yeah. today she's going to move into her own house in the next two weeks because somebody out there has found it good to invest in that individual. Yeah. So we as, a, as, a, as an organization, we got nothing, but an individual was built up and that individual Will now build up other people by saying yeah. these things are possible.
0: There is people out there that want to help. Yeah. It's a ricochet effect, and that's how it works, and that's amazing. Um, I'm definitely gonna. I mean, afterwards, I want I want you to send me all the details regarding the organisation, so I can, you know, encourage my my viewers and listeners to to do whatever they can, get in touch, and if they want to contribute, or contribute, which would be amazing. Um, so when I when I always wanted to come to South Africa anyway. So after COVID and everything else settles down, I'd love to come down and check out. the <laughs> The facilities and everything that you're doing right now, because right now is near enough. Definitely, possibly... you must come. Yeah, no, most definitely. <laughs> uh, I, I heard We're you mentioned the, the church.
1: Town. Are you a um? Are you a
0: ordained um, reverend by any chance?
1: Yes, I'm a reverend as well. Yes, I've got yeah. the I've got the church it, also in the middle of Gang Lane. I've got a church. Okay. And man. at the back of that church, there's also a fully fledged resource center. Yeah. That serves the community. I, I, actually, it feeds about 800 people every day. Oh, wow. Every God given day yeah. that feeds 800 people, it sees about fifty to sixty young people helping them with CVs, mm. and it does some youth development, and it, it it also it also allows us this side to manage a garden a, a organic feeding garden yeah. you know but uh, it started out from that facility and now today own vegetables as well and you know the beauty it, it is running the facility anything these facilities for us and on behalf of us yeah. and we can stand back with a smile and say look everything is doing I actually have a parole <laughs> a yeah. parole managing my finances today it's <laughs> currently on parole <laughs> <laughs> Looking, looking at the admin and the money, I always, I always tell my wife, "Hey, you got to double check on him every time," uh, but not in a bad way. Yeah. But he's doing so well; it's unbelievable. We never even had a a a, a human resource person that managed our our, our administration in that way. Yeah. And today he's doing it, so adding value to the that man's life. Uh, today his father and his family is rebuilt, and things are cooled down around. Him. Mm-hmm. You know? but, uh, I mean there's uh, quite a few paroles that we've helped like that just restoring human dignity that is to us the baseline restoring human dignity in the lives of men and women mm-hmm. and allowing them to do the same to their children mm-hmm. and it's happening and the evidence is there so if you come out to Cape Town soon
0: <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> you definitely. Have, they definitely. allow
1: you guys to fly very soon
0: yeah hopefully yeah. Oh, no, the, the reason why is because both my parents are actually uh, ordained pastors as well both my both my parents my dad's a reverend my mom's a reverend as well Okay. so I understand the work that you know and, and I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that the church should always be a part of the community and should always be a major contributor of the community because ideally that's, that's what it stands Most for it. to be a Christian and to be Christ-like yes, is, yes. To, is to sacrifice and to give to those um, yeah. less than you need so it's wonderful that you said that you've done all of those stuff through the church yeah. that's because that was going to be my next question, but it's already great to hear that you're already doing that. So that's fantastic. No, I actually started out in the church. The yeah. whole no operation started
1: from the church. Today, it has grown into multiple NGOs that is now doing the work. But the, the bulk of it started out of the church, where I was the ordained minister. And mm. uh, yeah, so the church is open seven days a week. You don't find a place closed. It's open seven days a week. Yeah. Now, halfway house we're running, is open basically 24-7. So people knock at this door at any time. I don't like it, but <laughs> <laughs> you get the knock at the door 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. A wet guy standing outside, uh, he was rain wet and is looking for some help. And uh, mm-hmm. don't, you don't always want that to happen. But mm-hmm. when it happens, the facility is there to accommodate it, to help that individual. Obviously, there's processes in place. But I would say that we've managed now from starts from a church and today having a 24-7 operation running, and not being funded, you know, this, the one that I'm running here, uh, also self-funded. Oh, you know, man. And it's, it's amazing what people can do if you give them an opportunity.
0: It's amazing. Yeah, that's beautiful to hear. Well, Craven, it's an absolute pleasure to hear from you and to hear your story and the great work that you're doing. And, I mean, I'm I'm going to... I, I'm going to be a great representative of. I mean, I'm going to represent your work wherever I go, and you know, encourage people to check out the work that you do, and encourage them to whether they can donate or get in touch in whatever way possible to do so. I will do once I get the contact details myself. But um, it's an absolute pleasure, and definitely, I look forward to meeting you one day in person when we do get a chance to travel and I do come down to Cape Town and you know see the project that you're running. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, looking
1: forward to meet you in person one day.